Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreev. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Russia is... Uh, <laughs> Russia, just Russia. in general. <laughs> Russia is embarking on alleged peace talks and is reportedly ready to allow Ukraine to join the EU if it remains neutral and has stopped calling for the country to be denazified. But in Syria, peace talks were a ruse to win time to prepare another offensive. Mm. Um, Putin has known to um, tweak the truth sometimes. Are these negotiations for real or are they a ploy? Um, They can be both, both advancing towards a position of uh, compromise and uh, give time to Putin's army to regroup, to resupply and all of those stuff. And that, I think, is the point, that there's no downside, that um, via the process of talking, Putin still gains notoriety, Putin still appears more reasonable, Putin still is driving wedges in the international community. The longer this goes on, the more international um, partners will start saying, why doesn't Ukraine accept that they've lost the Donbass? Do you believe that Putin has given up on the original war aims, which was regime change, so-called denazification, and is therefore willing to settle for, you know, annexation of, official annexation of Crimea and the Donbass? Or... Do you think, and maybe, and some people are even saying, well, that was the original, um, you almost, it was almost like a, yeah, yeah. a bargaining war. Yeah, he's created we, the space yeah, for that to, to be the reasonable, reasonable option. compromise, right? Which and why is, not just carve up uh, Ukraine? I see lots of people who don't live on, in Ukraine saying. Yeah. Um, so do you think. Maybe they could live with it. Do you think that, that do you think it, he is responding to military failure? Um, or do you think that the the broader goal of removing Zelensky is is still there. He's just not saying it out loud. The military offensive certainly hasn't gone well for Putin. That's for sure. But then again, Putin is not someone who could ever be accused of not being an opportunist. But it seems to me that the focus of the military exercise has switched to trying to secure this sort of land bridge and breaking off the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, Erdogan's taking the lead this time. Um, is he well-placed to be an honest broker between the two? Um, I mean, he's well-placed in that uh, Turkey has for quite some time now occupied this space where it straddles both the old Warsaw Pact territory and NATO. Erdogan himself is, of course, facing a very difficult election next year. His polling is absolutely tanking in Turkey. I mean, he's sort of 40-60 behind in the presidential election, but that is really quite extraordinary for Erdogan. So this makes him look good. You know, all these things can can move in tandem. Um, Putin can try to, to make Macron look like a fool because that, uh, you know, that reinforces the position of Le Pen. He can try and create wedges within the European Union. He can try and make Biden look doddery and at odds with the policy of the team at the White House. He can try and make Erdogan look like the honest broker. He can do all of those things. The more he occupies that political spotlight, the more he can move whatever uh, opportunistic strings he wants to pull, basically. So it's all, it's all gravy for him. 
Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi. Uh, appearing in front of MPs, Rishi Sunak has claimed that it's hard to disentangle why the UK's trade intensity has fallen by 15% since Brexit. Can you help explain this spooky mystery? <laughs> I mean, it's only hard, Rishi, if you're not paying attention, to be honest. Because um, <laughs> the Office for Budget Responsibility didn't find it hard. Uh, or at least uh, it hasn't been hard for them to give an honest assessment. They have a paper out saying that this 15% figure, uh, UK international trade will continue to be 15% less um, than if we had stayed within the European <clears throat> Union, uh, that there is little evidence for them to revise their assumption about the negative effect of Brexit on UK trade flows. And as a result, they continue to forecast little growth to export and import volumes and a fall in the trade intensity of the economy over the medium term. And this forecast, of course, backs up everything that we hear uh, from businesses. And uh, the UK Trade and Business Commission that Bess have written a secretariat for has spoken to every sector of the economy, from musicians to farmers to bankers, and particularly SMEs. And they are all unanimous in saying that Brexit red tape is crippling them and making the UK a much less attractive place uh, for trade. And that's going to have a, a, a cost impact on jobs um, and, of course, increased uh, prices and reduce supply for consumers. And there's talk of a further delay. Indeed. Exactly, Dory. I'm <laughs> glad you said that. Um, and, uh, you know, this week <laughs> the government <laughs> has now revealed they're eyeing up a farcical fourth delay to import checks. They were due in July. These new import checks, some have already come in um, because they are worried about the impact it's going to have on supply chains and the cost of living crisis. Um, so it's basically a, a tacit admission that, that Brexit trade barriers are hitting people uh, in their pockets. There's something about a fourth delay. Delay. Like if you postpone, you know, a drink with a friend, yeah, or one a wedding, time. or a book <laughs> deadline four times, it seems as if you don't want it to happen. Or a bit like that phrase: "It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late, but I just didn't want to come." <laughs> <laughs> Our guest this week has been a regular fixture on the shadow front bench for the last 10 years. She's covered the Foreign Office, Defence and Brexit briefs and is currently Shadow Attorney General. Emily Thornby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Um, it's just been revealed that PPE Medro, a firm linked to Tory peer Michelle Moan, earned £122 million for a shipment of medical gowns from China they bought for just £46 million, which is a uh, very good business, but they ended up never being used by the NHS. This isn't the only story like this. Do you think that anybody who made money from COVID equipment procurement will be held accountable. Is there any, you know, sort of, is there any political will there? Is that something that a future Labour government might do? I think there really is political will there. Um, I think the government may want to move on, but I think that the public who are having to pay for this want to know that they're getting value for money. Um, I think this afternoon, Sir John Bell, who's the government's advisor on life sciences, one of the most senior health advisors that they've got, has said how extremely unacceptable it is for their people to have been profiteering from PPE, profiteering from the pandemic. And I think that's got to be right. It's just not acceptable. It's uh, public money. And, uh, and people, of course, you know, if you want people to pay taxes, they have to know that the money is going to be used properly and not frittered away, you know, not, not, mm. not frittered away in contracts to the you know, the health secretary's publican who claims that he can make PPE, for example, as famously example. But there are many, many more. 
And you've written to Suella Braverman about the case of 800 sacked P&O workers. The government's yeah. talked about taking legal action against P&O, but doesn't appear to know whether they've broken the law or not. And there was some sort of uncertainty about whether, uh, you know, yes. an amendment that Chris Grayling had made meant that they, they had, in fact, broken the law. Um, yeah. Is the situation clearer now, the legal situation? I mean, I have my own views, but I think in the end, you know, the Attorney General's job should be to advise the government on what the law is. I mean, my view is, is that the law is just not strong enough on this. And yes, it was watered down by uh, by previous Tory ministers. But to be honest, it was never strong enough. And this is a this is a good example of why we need to have stronger legislation. You know, for example, P&O have said, well, yeah, we didn't consult the unions before we made everybody redundant, but that's because... You know, the unions would never agree with us. <laughs> kind of not really the point. The point is, is that if you get both sides of industry together around the table and the, and the business says, we're in real trouble, we're going to need to make some people redundant, then those with expertise from the other side of industry can say, well, you know that this works and we think this would work and we would be prepared to compromise on this in order to keep the business going. And that's why there should be the consultation. And if you don't, then the penalty is you have to pay three months pay. So P&O said, well, we don't want to talk to the unions. We're just going to give them three months pay. Well, if that's right, then I think that we should up the penalty, for example, and we should make it 12 months. It, it, it helps business. It helps our economy mm. for both sides of industry to work together. And, you know, we don't get this kind of uh, pirate capitalism. This week on the show, we'll be speaking to Emily about Partygate, Ukraine and the state of both the Tories and Labour. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Mini Raman is on holiday, so we're free to ask the burning question, who is our favourite <laughs> Tory out of the current crop? We miss you, Mini. <laughs> you don't have to do it this time. But first, a word from Naomi. Before we start, it's your last chance to get tickets for our northernmost performance yet. This weekend at the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday the 3rd of April. It's a 2pm matinee show with Alex, Dorian, Ian and me. And then on Wednesday the 8th of June, we'll be live at the Old Market Theatre in Hove with Roz, Ian, Dorian and Alex. All tickets are on general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on all tickets. So search Patreon, Oh God, What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We're really looking forward to seeing you all there. First this week, on Tuesday, the Met issued its first fixed penalty notices in its investigation into parties at Downing Street. In a statement, the Met said identities of people dealt with by cautions, speeding fines and other fixed penalties should not be released or confirmed. So no names yet. Um, Emily, you're the lawyer in the room. Um, a police source said that these charges, uh, the first wave of charges, are the low-hanging fruit. It seems to me that you either attended a rule-breaking party or you didn't. So so why is this happening in stages? What would the high-hanging fruit be <laughs> in this scenario? Well, I mean, those people who've admitted being in parties, being at parties, so those who have said, well, yeah, yeah, it's a fair cop, you know, and, right. uh, and there's photographs of them or whatever else there is, people who aren't arguing the toss. So you start with them. Um, I imagine, and then move on to the more difficult cases and obviously probably end up with the Prime Minister. <laughs> and the fines apparently can range from £100 to £10,000. Why is yes. there such, again, it seems like they're all doing the same thing. Why is there such a big range? Do you get fined more for partying harder? Uh, you get fined more if you organise a rave. So right. you're one of the organisers of a 1,000 right. people turning up, you know, 
in we'll a probably in a get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then less if you've sort of turned up at your friend's house with a birthday card, as somebody did get prosecuted. You know, turned up at a friend's house with a birthday card, and then there were some other people in the room that were having a having a birthday party. They all got fined. They they didn't claim the defence. They were ambushed by cake. They didn't. They didn't. <laughs> but I mean, it does bring the serious point, which is, you know, that the the rule of law means that everybody should be treated equally, and you can't have some rules for some people and no rules for other people. We don't have gods amongst us. You know, the rules apply to the prime minister as they apply to the woman popping round to her neighbours with a birthday card. And if Johnson himself was fined, um, so could he just really manage to conceal that fact? Because obviously the Met wouldn't name him. Well, I mean, I think I think technically he could, but politically he can't because he has mm. said that he's going to tell us whether or not he uh, he gets fined. I mean, there's another question as to whether his wife will tell us if she gets fined. And I would have, I, my own view is that elected politicians are accountable and they should all uh, make it clear if they have been fined. Um, there is a question about his wife and whether, you know, the fact that his wife was fined would show that it wasn't a work meeting, I suppose. But, um, you know, because she's made it clear that she doesn't have anything to do with his work. And so, surely there has to be a difference between <laughs> elected politicians, you know, being held to a, a higher level of accountability and then those who actually made the law in the first place. I think that's right. And I think that the other point is, is isn't it interesting how the deputy prime minister has uh, been interviewed and made it clear some months ago that when he was in charge of number 10, when the prime minister was in hospital, there were no parties, there was no Friday night wine, there was no drinking culture. Mm. Yeah, now you can read, you know, fill in the blanks as to what it was that he was actually saying. Now, obviously, the, you know, Johnson denied that he'd done anything wrong. And there was talk, you know, back in the kind of height of this scandal that, that if he was fined, that would be it. That would be the trigger for uh, a resignation or the letters to the 1922 committee. Do you think that that would still be the trigger or would the Tories find ways for it not to be? I don't really understand them. I mean, can I just say, I don't understand them. Um, it does seem to me that we have a prime minister who has, in the cold light of day, gone before parliament and lied to parliament and lied to the British public and treated us all as fools. I mean, when I speak to people on the doorstep, um, when they say, you know, they don't know which way they're voting, and I've been to lots of different constituencies recently, and they, they don't know which way they're voting, and then I say, well, which party did you vote for last time? And when they say they voted Conservative last time, we end up with very interesting conversations. There are very many more people who say they don't know than are saying that they're voting Conservative. If they don't realise that, then it's their lookout. But they may well end up with you know, very bad council results. And perhaps at that stage, they will finally let him go. But you know, I, I also think that the Conservative Party has changed a great deal um, over Brexit. And there was a kind of like almost... Um, I don't know, like a sort of loyalty test. You know, not only must you agree to Brexit, but you must agree to Boris's Brexit. And if you don't, you'll be thrown out of the Tory party. You will, you know, and so many longstanding Conservative MPs lost their seats, were deselected. Um, and so they've been replaced by people who have their very seat because they they took Boris's shilling. And then all of the MPs who didn't necessarily expect to get elected, but who also believe that they owe it all to Boris. Now, can they therefore get rid of Boris? 
I mean, it must be hard for them if they really believe mm. that, uh, that you know, it wasn't. I mean, I'm obviously, in any political party, in, in any bunch of MPs will believe that they owe a great deal to their leader. But it's particularly strong, I think, at the moment, because of the Tory party have veered off from the type of party that they have been for many years and become, I think, something which, well, I hope is transient, but who knows. And uh, Naomi, how does this affect the long delayed soon grey report? Is she just is she, is she doing her own thing or is she is she off the leash now? Well, for now I think uh, he he is off the hook at least with Tory MPs. Um and of course that might change if he is handed a fixed penalty notice by the Met and we get to find out about it. Um or if Sue Gray's report includes some particularly gory details about Johnson personally. However, I think that the very fact that the government has proactively provided a commitment that they will make that public if it happens might be an indication that they've been given some kind of indication that Johnson is not in the immediate firing line. The momentum of it has gone out of it a little bit and the public don't need to be told what they already know, although I agree with Emily that it is still a very salient issue in parts of the country. Johnson probably feels the wind in his sails as well. Um, after this week, he had this this uh, dinner with Conservative MPs where not only did Tory MPs ignore bereaved families on their way into yet another party. I don't know if people saw that uh, in the media. It was absolutely disgusting. But then they were laughing at jokes about trans issues on the very night that one of their own publishes an emotional statement um, about gender dysphoria and sexual violence. Um, but the public mood really is one to watch. Polling expert James Johnson, I don't think he's a, uh, a relation, uh, tweeted that this nonchalance about Partygate is not shared generally right. by the public. And so if the Tory party has a bad election in May, he might be in trouble again. But as I've said previously on the podcast, the Conservatives aren't defending that many seats this May. Um, so I expect them to have a bad showing, mm. but it may, they may be able to spin it relatively favourably. I spoke to one one person in Barnet, I remember, who said that he was he was a Conservative supporter. And I said, Are you, do you support Boris Johnson then? And he said, don't laugh at me. <laughs> that's, that's very telling. <laughs> Well, meanwhile, uh, the war in Ukraine continues. World leaders have been assembling, but Boris Johnson looked isolated at last week's NATO meeting after his comments comparing the war to Brexit. Even Viktor Orban, who uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky personally criticised, looked more comfortable Mm. than Johnson. Um, Alex, despite this, Zelensky has been uh, complimentary, uh, saying that Johnson is helping more than Schultz in Germany or Macron in France. So why this dissonance? Why does it seem that, that, that Johnson is at both handling this well and sort of being shunned? Two reasons, I think. One is a psychological one. The the thing that people who know Johnson always say about Johnson is that the more you get to know him, the less you like him. Um, and so... Zelensky just doesn't know him well, well enough. Well, <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely the case. And you look at the effect on the voting public as well. You look at the effect on former friends and former spouses even... The more you get to know Johnson, the more you get to suspect the bombast, to distrust the promise. And Zelensky is still in a sort of honeymoon period where he sort of buys the big rhetoric um, that we're completely behind you, etc. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is a historical one. We have to understand that up until 2013, really, the UK was the main 
advocate of EU expansion eastwards. It was only in the months just before Romania and Bulgaria joined and because Cameron was having trouble that he started looking for different ways of limiting freedom of movement Mm. that the UK took its foot off the enlargement pedal. And so Ukraine historically sees the UK as a party that pushed for the inclusion in the EU. And so historically, I think, and possibly rightly, Ukraine blames this this retinence and this risk aversion coming from Central Europe much more for the fact that it's now outside those structures and finds itself vulnerable. So he's he's sort of benefiting from both personal and historical reasons, I think. And his approval rating has been going up. Um, It could hardly go down Mm. um, from where it was at the peak of the scandal. Is this just because the fading of Partygate um, removes a negative or is there anything positive underpinning it? I'm not sure I agree with a with a going up framing. I think there's been a uh, there's been a bounce back from the very low point yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that he found both the parties and his personal ratings. But then it's sort of become stuck about four or five points behind Labour. And to put that in context, it, it's interesting because today we're almost to the day, two years since it was announced that Keir Starmer had won the Labour leadership election. I think it was the 26th of March 2020. Uh, Emily will correct me if I'm wrong. So looking at the, the aggregate polling at that point, the Tories were 22 points ahead. And it wasn't a fluke. It was a sort of stable lead. So to end up in a situation where two years later, this yeah. this man that secured a huge majority is now consistently behind... I don't think we should undersell that as a as a, a massive fall, you yeah, know, yeah. because it was from a very high place. Uh, Naomi, according to a Home Office source, fewer than 10% of the 20,000 applications to the Homes for Ukraine programme have been approved. There's a frighteningly small number of visa as being approved for refugees. Um, wh- what's sort of happening? Why is it why is it so slow? Because there were there were sort of some concerns over homes in Ukraine, mm. as in that this could be a license for mm. for sort of bad actors to to exploit and uh, abuse refugees. So is this just sort of doing due diligence, or is it no. far slower than it no, needs no, to be? No, no, it's uh, a design failure um, or <laughs> designed to fail, depending on whether you believe in cock up or conspiracy. In fact, the latest figures dropped this morning from uh, the Home Office. Um, and they're falling even further behind just 2,700 of 28,300, so less now than the 10% figure. Mm. And I think it's pretty clear that the government just were not anticipating the level of generosity of the British public. And maybe that's because they think that we're all as heartless as they are and just had no plans in place to take up an enthusiastic uptake in applications. As for what happens to these people, uh, in the meantime, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure, but I expect many will begin to look elsewhere in Europe out of frustration. And we have to suspect, given the Conservative record on refugees and asylum seekers, that this may have been part of the plan. And it's particularly shameful when you consider that Germany has already taken 
a quarter of a million refugees and the British public have offered to take similar numbers, but it's it's the government that's stopping them doing so. Um, apparently, Priti Patel is now sitting in daily EXO meetings and pressing her staff to work harder on the issue, um, which leads me to think that we can only expect things to get immeasurably worse. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, Germany is also doubling its defence spending, which would seem to be a popular move um, for Sunak as well. He hasn't taken it. Um, Why do you think that is? Is that just austerity brain (laughs) taking over? I think there's two things. I think we already spend quite a high proportion of our GDP on defence, but the Germans didn't. And, And what the Germans have decided to do is a complete about face in terms of what their involvement in Europe is and seeing themselves as a nation that that will is prepared to send their forces to other countries in Europe is a big emotional thing for the Germans, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, and they have decided that now is the time to do it. And it, interestingly, under a, a left-wing government has decided that they will increase the, hugely increase the amount of money that they're spending on defence, but also that they will send forces to the vulnerable areas on the edge of NATO, um, to give reassurance to those countries. So, and and then you know, couple that with them deciding that they're that they're not going to that, they, that they're not going to buy as much gas from Russia as they were before, um, and uh, and, cl- and not going ahead with the pipeline. There has been really big change in mm. German politics. There is no big change in British politics because we have a government, in my view, that doesn't step up when there are big cha- big challenges. Um, can I can I just can I just talk briefly about um, Boris Johnson's electoral success and his popularity? Please, please do. I mean, that what I would say is this: is that I have no doubt that uh, that Boris Johnson has ensured that he has a close relationship with Zelensky, and, uh, and has been on an absolute charm offensive with him. And to a certain extent, I'm pleased about that because you know Zelensky needs friends and people he can get on with and he can joke around with and you know and, and so on. I mean, I think that's all fine. And Zelensky looks at what's happening in Ukraine and, you know, he has a personal relationship with with Boris Johnson and the British have been supporting them for longer than most other countries have. So all of that is positive. He doesn't have the perspective, as Naomi has been saying, of, you know, someone who can see what's happening, particularly for all these poor, particularly women and children and elderly people who've fled into Europe and who can go to practically any country but can't get into Britain um, Mm. because because of what we've done. And I think one of the reasons that we've got ourselves into the mess is absolutely that we have a Home Office that isn't really fit for purpose, but we also have a Home Secretary who didn't want to change the rules in order to help refugees to come from from Ukraine. Um, And then I think that what, what happened was that they decided that they were kind of quite a long way behind public opinion. And at that point, you know, they decided to change the game and uh, and suddenly say, oh, well, do you want to have a, a Ukrainian refugee in your house? You know, let's everybody talk about that over breakfast. You know, perhaps we can change the conversation. And it was a classic, classic gove. Is change the conversation completely. Change the because we are because we're we're bleeding support here because the public are in a different place to us. And then, of course, you know, they get through another week. But then after a week, they have to start providing some refugees. And they can't do that because they haven't sorted themselves out. So that's why we have the public on, you know, one place and the government continuing to be, you know, running as fast as it can and falling over itself to try to catch up with public opinion. Because, of course, the British public are big hearted. and Of course, they want to give support to people. Of course they do. But we don't have a government that can step up to that.
Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. Bit of showbiz uh, this week as DB asks, did the panel expend much brain time on Will Smith slapping Chris Rock like the rest of the world did? Did it just hog the headlines because something meaningless and frothy is a blessed relief from every other horrific story? Or, and I'm not sure he means this bit seriously, was it really a staged stunt to distract from Ukraine as conspiracy Twitter thought? Naomi, were you exploding with hot takes? The whole thing was just gross. The whole thing. So first up, Chris Rock breaks the golden rule, I think, of comedy, and he punched down instead of up. And he took aim at a black woman with a chronic condition. Not funny. But of course, Smith shouldn't have resorted to violence. Um, I'm old enough to remember uh, when Jarvis Cocker mooned Michael Jackson at the 1996 Brit Awards, which... So am I, it's not very old. (laughs) (laughs) Which, incidentally, uh, was 13 years before Kanye West interrupted Taylor Swift at the MTV Awards. As as I remember it, Cocker was... I think he was kept in a like a, in a police cell until three a.m. or something, yeah. uh, because apparently his actions were akin to assaulting Bob, children. Bob Mortimer, who was legal training, got him out. Right, didn't know. Fun yeah. fact. Fun fact. Um, and I just can't help but wonder what the reaction would have been if we'd had Twitter then, and maybe maybe thank God we didn't. So I, I do think, obviously, social media, you know, am, amplified the whole thing, uh, but it, it was just depressing all round, really. I think the serious side to this, though. Is, is that Will Smith has talked about, about having been brought up by a violent father and about, mm. uh, about the effect that it can have on, on kids. And I think, you know, of all people, he knows that you know, to, for him to behave like that on a very public stage and for it to be seen as OK or funny um, can have a you know, very detrimental effect on, on, on kids. Mm. But, you know, I think there's also something psychologically about, you know, what effect does it have on men when they grow up, when they've had a violent father and they haven't protected their mother sufficiently? And mm-hmm. maybe there's something about, you know, being therefore feeling, well, I can't protect my mother, but I'm damn well going to protect my wife. And it's just how you do that and what's appropriate. I think that's that's part of it. I must admit, I was surprised by people who were surprised that this was a big story because it was literally the most extreme thing that has ever happened in the history of the most watched cultural event on American television, mm. you know, after like Super Bowl and sports yeah. events. It was like it was a genuinely extreme and unprecedented thing that obviously people were going to be, you know, animated about. It's a physical assault on on the biggest stage possible and in response to a joke. And I, I mean, I think I'm going to disagree. I don't think, I think that the, the punching down, punching up thing might be something that, that, that one, it's a moral position one can take. It's not the golden rule of comedy. It has not, I mean, there's a long, 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 long tradition of comedy. It's, that's a sort of, wow. there's I, a long tradition of. The of funniest comedy. Comedy doing up. all kinds of things. And I, I don't, I don't buy that at all. But it, it was, it was, there's a kind of whole tradition of the celebrity roast or whatever. It was a bad joke. But I was, I must admit, I was surprised at people. I, I had some... uh, people just going, ah, well, in some way, an assault is justified. It doesn't matter how bad uh, the joke is. I had some quite feminist friends immediately WhatsApping about it saying, oh, I get it, I get it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he stood up for his wife. That was great. That was great. Yeah, I was really wow. quite shocked by it. Yeah, no, I just don't think you can ever, I, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sort of hard line, hard line on that because um, same, same, completely celeb- violence is. <laughs> 
never ever to be condoned. Um, but yeah, but I'm not surprised it was a big story, and I think it's fading, faded already, and in no sense was it a distraction. Do you know what I mean? I think the way I mean, people talk about the news sometimes. I'm not surprised at the overreaction because I kind of understand it. Um, you know, in a in an environment where you you're on social media, you're a public person, and people take pot shots at you all the time, mm. I can very well imagine that this might have been the 50th or the 500th time that that Will Smith that has had to, to yeah. um, uh, suffer a joke about, um, you know, his wife having shaved her head. Um, but she's got alopecia. And, and so I understand the overreaction. What I don't understand is the crossing of the line to put your hands on somebody else because that's just not in my psychological makeup. But it's like Emily says, there is a, there is a kind of sadness to it. Yeah. You know, that this yeah, is... When, when somebody snaps, uh, there, the loss of control... I'm not sure if you know, there's a... I'm not going to go into depth here, but there's a play, The Best of Enemies, about this debate in the 60s, series of debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And infamously, William F. Buckley snapped and uh, homophobic abuse towards Gore Vidal. It was this, you know, real shaming moment. And the play does dig into what it is like to have snapped on a huge platform, to have lost control and to then not defend that and to have shown an ugly side of you that you never wanted to show. So I think you can show some sort of compassion. I think also, I think also for Will Smith, it was, you know, he's been up for an Oscar so many times and hasn't had it. And this was the time when everybody thought he was going to. And someone tells a joke about something which he's obviously very uncomfortable about. He laughs, then he looks at his wife and he realises how upset she is. And at that point he goes, no, I've got to defend her. Yeah, no, I I understand all of that. All I'm saying is that there is a a bright, clear line for me there. And, you know, I grew up with an extremely violent father and the effect it's had on me is precisely the opposite. It's, it's to put me in a frame of mind where I can never imagine mm. um, putting my hands on, on another person in a violent way. I don't well, get it. I, I cannot calculate it at any well, level. I, I would say I want to reassure DB here that this is not, in fact, distracted from the invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> and that, you know, we, we, we can hold uh, multiple news mm. events in our heads. Yeah. Now we're going to talk more to Emily Thornbury, Shadow Attorney General and MP for Islington South and Finsbury, where we're broadcasting from at this very moment. Emily, former leadership frontrunner Rishi Sunak had an awful week following his flop spring statement. We talked about um, the polls earlier that Labour's lead has narrowed, but it's very consistent. How confident are Labour feeling right now? Oh, I don't think that we're confident. I think we're I think we're encouraged, we're greatly encouraged, and we're more confident than we were, but I think we've still got quite a long way to go, and we know that. You know, to be ahead in the polls is fine, but we, I mean, we have, they have a majority of 80. We have to win so many seats back, so many seats back, and, and to do it in one leap is going to be really difficult. But I always hold on to the example of the only other time that I know of when there was a single issue election. And listen, you know, I don't think we should have had an election on Brexit. I think we should have had a second referendum on Brexit, but you know, that's what we had. 
Um, You're in good company. I'm no, no, very safe good space company. for that. No, no, yeah. no. But, um, but, you know, the last time that we had a single issue election was the Khaki election of 1900. I appreciate it's a long time ago. But nevertheless, you know, the Tories had been in power for a long time and they won this election on a majority of something like 140 or something. And, and then, you know, the next election, and everyone said, oh, you know, they've been in power for 20 years. There's never going to be any other party. That's it. They're always going to be in power. Next election, they got absolutely whomped. Because if you stand on just one issue and you don't necessarily deliver that well, I think politics is very unstable. And, and it is within our grasp. But you know, we have to be pretty single-minded about it. And I think one of the things that we have to always remember is we need to be convincing people who, who voted Conservative last time to vote Labour if we're going to win. And that's the that's the bottom line. You know, we've got to win the seats. We've got to get into power next time. We cannot go on like this. Everything that we do has to be to make sure that we get elected next time. I say to Labour activists all the time, you know, at the end of each day, tell me, you know, look at the mirror and tell yourself, you know, what did I do today to make it uh, more likely that uh, we'll get a Labour government? Because that's how we ought to be measuring ourselves. Well, in The New Statesman, um, Paul Mason argues Labour has the space now to argue for more radical measures to lessen the cost of living crisis, reform the energy system and so on. Yeah. While Tony Blair, generally not someone on the same page as Paul Mason, in, in the same magazine, calls for a radical vision, but one that doesn't frighten people. But both of them are using this this word. Yeah. Now, I we've... We've talked a lot before about how, of course, you're not going to have a kind of whole raft of policies in advance yeah. of an election. But does Labour have a radical vision at the moment? I think that we have a number of things that we that we talk about. There are, I mean, I had a we had a shadow cabinet today about constitutional issues and about how we can devolve power to the regions, to local authorities, to Scotland, to to Wales. You know, so that we don't just get a focus of power in Edinburgh, but we get it, you know, spread throughout Scotland. There are really interesting paper that we were discussing today at Shadow Cabinet. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, and we quite often have sort of political Shadow Cabinets where we talk about the big issues, you know, toss around ideas in order to try to make sure that we can collectively you know, agree on the way forward on on many of these, uh, these really important issues. Um, whilst constantly measuring that against, you know, is this what the public want? Because in the end, you can be as radical and as perfect and as beautiful as you want to be. But if you don't get elected, then you're absolutely of no use to anybody. Emily, I've got a question for you that's around the, the what the public want question. Mm. Um, Labour has been fighting the government's uh, police crime sentencing courts bill yeah. in the Commons and the Lords brilliantly. Still a couple of wins in the Lords last week. Mm. Hopefully uh, the Commons won't chuck those out. Mm. Uh, and if they do, the Lords will have the appetite for a bit more of a ping pong. Um, but but on this issue of where the public are on the police, mm. I'm interested in how Labour would balance the growing distrust people feel for the police, particularly the Met, mm. with the desire, among other parts of the, the public, for more policing, more bobbies on the beat, more visible mm. policing. I think the way you balance it is that you, I mean, there are two kind of principles, I think. I mean, the first is, is that pr policing only works when it's policing by consent, but it's to the interest, in the interest of everybody that we have proper policing, you know, that works, but it has to work with the community. Um, I was talking yesterday to, I had this horrible, horrible murder in my constituency where this 19-year-old woman was killed and the alleged assailant um, was caught 
um, because the because the public told the police where he was hiding. If they didn't trust the police to tell them, then that you know the whole thing would have broken down. You have to have policing by consent. And I think the other thing is is that we also have to be mindful of the fact that there is, of all the things that are bad with the Metropolitan Police, there is sufficient good in the Metropolitan Police to be able to fix it. You know, the two things do balance out. There are good police officers as well as as bad ones, but there is a system there which is broken and we need to make sure that we mine what's good about the the Met in order to, to fix it. And then moving on to an issue uh, around unions, Unite the Union has been supporting a strike of bin workers against um, the Labour-held council in Coventry. Mm. Uh, Sharon Graham allegedly hasn't met with Starmer for for quite some time. How concerned is Labour at the moment about Unite and the relationship with the unions in general? Well, look, we were created by the trade union movement. You know, there's no secret about this. You know, it's in the name. You know, we were set up by the trade union movement to be its political arm. But we have to make our own choices. But that's informed by the experience of the unions and by particularly by their members. Um, I think Sharon is a, is a really effective trade union leader. She knows exactly what her members want and she goes out to make sure they get it. Um, and she's a hard nut, <laughs> and um, I have great respect for her. Um, she's no pushover, and uh, and yeah, she, we will have a, you know, we will have our relationship will have its ups and downs, but that's because we could be straight with each other. Going back to Ukraine, you were shadow foreign secretary during the the Skripal poisoning, mm-hmm. um, and even Andrew Murray has said that that, that Corbyn botched the response with his his statements. Then now, of course, Corbyn is is firmly in the Stop the War Coalition camp. He's estranged from Labour. It's a very different period uh, for the Labour Party. Did you have disagreements um, that's behind the scenes about Putin? It seems hard to square the foreign policy that Labour has generally with the beliefs that he expressed. Um, This isn't a secret anymore. I mean, all of the emails (laughs) that, uh, that were exchanged with the leader's office and elsewhere have been leaked. So people can see... Um, when there was originally a statement on Skripal, I was going to do it, and the speech that I was going to write, and the speech that Jeremy wrote. I mean, pe- people can see that there was a difference. <laughs> and uh, and then also when Seamus Milne then briefed the lobby, um, even further away from what Jeremy had actually said in the chamber, I went out on the media immediately and said that people should listen to elected politicians. And I was the shadow foreign secretary. And as far as I was concerned, there was clear, frankly, prima facie evidence um, that the Russians were responsible for the poisoning and that we had heard no defence at all from the Russians. So we had to assume that that they were guilty. If you look at our manifesto, we had a clear uh, commitment to NATO. Jeremy's style was to, if you were given a job, you you were allowed to to go ahead and develop, you know, policy. And and Nia Griffith and I, you know, developed a, a policy of support for NATO, strong stance on Russia. Yeah, I mean, I people don't tell this part of the narrative because it isn't very convenient, um, but it's true. And and part of the problem as well, I say it's no secret this anymore, um, was the tension between between elected politicians and uh, and guys in the dark who thought that they were more powerful. 
Uh, well, Keir Starmer now sort of believes that, that the supporting the stop the war position on Ukraine, which is broadly speaking sort of blaming NATO as well as Russia, there's a sort of both sidesism to it, was incompatible with being a Labour MP. I think the, the, the 11 MPs who had signed that all kind of withdrew their, their names. Mm. Do you agree that, you know, the, the stop the war and Labour are not compatible at the current moment? I think that statement was was ill-conceived. There were lots of things that I disliked about it. I mean, I personally was particularly upset about the idea that NATO was in any way aggressive when it came to Yugoslavia. My father was a peacekeeper in Bosnia. He was held hostage in Mostar. Um, There was, you know, people were desperate and it was not because NATO was being the aggressor. It was because the Serbs were being the aggressors and supported by Russia. And in the end, um, NATO took a stand, quite rightly. So I, I found it very insulting, personally. Um, and uh, and I know that uh, the, the Labour MPs kind of looked again at it and just went, actually, no, this isn't right, and took their names off it again. Emily, can I ask you something? I'm heartened by the idea that you're having big conversations about constitutional reform. We did, we did in an the air studio, punch. We were like, yes. um, because actually, you know, I'm very, very conscious that the last few years have seen an extraordinary erosion of the sort of conventions and standards of public mm. life that we've yeah, exactly. we've come to expect. And also a massive power grab by the executive mm. with loads of sort of Henry VIII powers. Mm. What I'm wondering is this, how much of a priority and how much of a, a stated priority will this be for the Labour Party? Because if you get into power, mm. faced with all this unfettered ability to do stuff mm. for all the the best reasons, I think it will require huge moral fortitude to say we're going to give loads of that power away. Mm. We're going to rein ourselves in and as the executive and actually create a firm a, a framework that imposes better checks and balances on us. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear all of that and I understand it. We need to be disciplined about it. Of course we do. Um, I can't see a great deal of this being on any kind of pledge card. I can't see it being front and centre in terms of the general election. I don't think it's the sort of thing that wins votes. I think that hmm. people do feel that they're not listened to, that they are marginalised and they are increasing. Well, how about electoral reform then? That that. That seems to me to be quite a I knew you were getting there. I knew issue you were going there. <laughs> well, like, he plays the lights on the route on the route to that question. <laughs> it's a fair question though, right? Because at the moment we're we're living through an age where the government is pretty much doing as it pleases. So it is a fair question to to ask what will what will the sort of character of a Labour government be, rather than just the policy? I think that sometimes when people talk about electoral reform, it's almost sometimes people kind of think that's what we need to do. We need to be talking about electoral reform. We need to be talking about electoral pacts. We need to be talking about this, that and the other. But we need to win an election and to first pass the post before we do anything else. We need to make sure that we get people who have voted Conservative in the past to vote Labour so that we can get a majority Labour government. I mean, that is what we need to do. Mm. And, and everything else is kind of distraction. And yes, there are, you know, there are constitutional changes that we are we're considering. 
And I can't really go into all the details of it yet because we obviously we haven't announced it. But but it is about you know, devolving mm. power downwards. I don't know why you don't want to announce policies on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, I take your point. Obviously, uh, I also would like Labour to win uh, win power. Um, But obviously part of trying to – it's always the problem, isn't it? The part of trying to win over people who voted uh, Tory or Lib Dem um, is that it sort of can alienate some people on the left. Uh, Rolling Stone just published a report in the decline in interest in membership among younger people yeah. and asks why younger members on the left of the party would, would sort of care about Labour, invest emotionally in Labour, when they could get involved in climate activism, attend a BLM march or, or sort of drop out altogether. What is Labour's pitch to... I see the pitch, it's pitch to people that didn't like Corbyn. What's its pitch to those young people who flock to Corbyn where that was their first political experience mm-hmm. and now feel that they're just not wanted? Well, I think the first thing is to say that they are wanted. You know, we are the coalition on the left and there is a place for idealistic people, young people in the Labour Party and we need them. We need them to to give us a bit of heart and soul Always, you know, and if you're not, and I always wonder, you know, if you're not on the left when you're young, when are you ever on the left? Um, You know, if you're not idealistic when you're young, when are you ever idealistic? We need to have that kind of lifeblood. We need to have their enthusiasm and their idealism. Of course we do. And the great thing about being involved in party politics is that you can have a role in actually making a change. You know, party politics is about how do you get hold of the levers of power directly? How do you do that and then change things for the better? I mean, you can be involved in climate activism in terms of, you know, pressure groups and so on. But what are the pressure groups for? They are there are pressure groups in order to make sure that progressive parties and in Britain, it's the Labour Party, make sure that the Labour Party does the right thing when it comes to climate, climate change. You know, that's. Civil society only ever gets you so far. It's great, but it only well, gets you so it, it far. Makes you, it might make you feel better. Before. It might make you feel like you have a place. It might make you feel like you're doing something, but you're not. The only way in which you can really do something is through political parties and the and the coalition on the left is the Labour Party and you are very welcome. But is that pragmatism perhaps a hard sell for idealists? Because that's the problem with our idealists is they're very idealistic. <laughs> and, and often often that, that sort of quite sensible and, 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 you know, sort of objectively true message that you need to win power. It can seem so uh, cautious and, and sort of small C conservative. And, and, and it's as if the, 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 the sort of louder, more idealistic people are sort of being told to quiet and down. Yeah, no, bit, I understand so not that. To scare I the horses. That. But what can you do? I mean, it's like, it is true. So what can I say? And it's, it may not be terribly glamorous. It may not be as glamorous. And I tell you what, you know, you know, when it comes to the politics, you know, politics and particularly many of the young people that I've seen, you know, part of the problem as well is that is that really profound change can take quite a long time. And also you need to compromise. And that's not necessarily kind of the most glamorous thing to do. You know, to get your hands dirty and to do that. But you can change things and you can change the country for the better, but you have to get power, which is why throughout this uh, podcast, I keep going back to my central point, which is we have to get Labour into power. (laughs) Well, (laughs) finally, then, you've hit out Dominic Raab for for banging on about political correctness. Mm. Uh, While 15 percent of rape cases were delayed in the last year, there are many real kind of material problems that people are facing. And the Tories are obviously aching to wage a war on wokery, Mm. uh, as they insist on calling it. And on a number of issues. I mean, the the trans issue is is one of them, but there, there there are others. 
Um, I wonder, is, does Labour sort of plan to to fight that, to sort of respond in the culture war, or to steer clear? Is there a way without sort of, a, you know, a, a, the feeling of throwing anyone under the bus to avoid getting sucked into these sort of very noisy fights? Yeah. So you have to kind of step back and think to yourself, why are they doing this? What are they up to? And how does that measure against getting Labour into government? And I'm afraid we have to think in those terms. But you're absolutely right. You know, if Labour isn't the party for those who are marginalised and those who are disempowered, then why are we here? So we also need to make sure that we continue to put our arm around people, protect people um, and be clear about whose side we're on. But, you know, when there's a big flashing light saying elephant trap, you know, Tories want to go, want you to go this way. We have to kind of think twice about that. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Naomi. Well, um, actually, this is one that Alex might have uh, quite a bit of sympathy with. Um, it's a story uh, that I've only really seen covered in The Independent, um, and that's that Brexit is still meaning that there are two million people at risk of deportation mm. from the UK because they hold temporary residency rights. And this was a status that was given to people who were resident in the UK before the end of free movement in December 2020, but who couldn't produce all of the evidence that they needed uh, to, to show that they'd been in the country for more than five years by that point. So they didn't get that permanent leave to remain, but they did get this temporary status. So people who do not reapply in time are going to lose their right to live, work, access housing, claim benefits, and could even be removed by the Home Office. And for some of the two million people with pre-settled status, the, the process is actually going to be a lot harder than it was first time round, because it's going to be a much more onerous application process this time. They're going to require even more documentation than last time, which they obviously struggled to do, which is why they only got the temporary status in the first uh, stage. And uh, they're going to be much less likely to be offered any uh, support from officials. So more of a piece on the hostile environment, which of course has rightly focused on the chronic and acute um, plight of Ukrainian refugees. But uh, let's not forget how our EU friends resident in the UK are being treated. And that's two million of them. So a really enormous chunk. Thanks, Naomi. Alex? So um, mine is a, a bit of information that's emerged because of a, a, a question, a written question sent by the Liberal Democrats to um, the Home Office, which revealed that eight of the Russian individuals sanctioned um, under the latest round of Ukraine sanctions basically got a, a British visa or a citizenship under the, the Tier 1 investor scheme known as the Golden Visa. Mm. So that's eight of the people we're now sanctioning for basically being um, associates, close associates of Putin, have come to the UK... In the last 14 years, because the scheme has only been, mm. been open since 2008, so we're talking post-poisoning um, mm -hmm. and post that extraordinary speech where he made it quite clear that he had expansionist ambition. And to me, that is just a classic symptom of the malaise going on 
at the moment in British politics. The, the governing party literally sold citizenship and with it access to the UK financial system and to um, UK politics for a fee um, to people who are associates of a person who actively wants to harm the interests of this country. And I will say what I have said many, many times. There are always buyers of access. The security risk is not the buyer of access. The security risk is the seller of access. Well, can I just clarify? You say 2008. So that's a Gordon Brown Yeah, yeah. The, the tier one investor visa scheme started in 2008. I mean, it wasn't particularly targeted at Russian oligarchs. It was really a couple of years into um, Cameron's term that it right. started being used by Russian oligarchs in a big, big way. It was targeted at people who basically came here and invested a large amount of money. Um, and r what Russian oligarchs did is they basically came here and bought very, very expensive property. So, yeah, my under the radar this week is uh, MPs voting on whether to maintain the right to receive abortion pills by post, which was introduced during the pandemic and used by around 150,000 women. Uh, the Department of Health wanted to scrap it, meaning that women would have to go back to um, needing to actually go to a doctor to get the first of those pills. But medical groups and women's organisations fought back and secured a vote. And our guest, Emily Thornbury, was actually in that vote. Uh, so what happened? Yeah. So what happened was that there was a big debate about this. Um, the, the Conservative Party had sort of said that they wanted to get rid of this. But then when it comes to a, an, a vote on something like abortion, they have to have a free vote. So the front bench on the whole uh, voted in favour of, of the change. Um, but it, because it was a free vote, we were able to organise and, uh, and get lots of people from all parties to come and vote the right way. Um, and we won it um, on the basis of uh, 27 votes. But we had an unofficial whip. So you, you know, so hmm. so you had to kind of. So we were standing at, uh, at particularly key points um, by the lobby, going pro-choice <laughs> this way, progressive <laughs> voters this way. You want to vote for women? Come this way, and it just sort of pushing people in, into the right direction. Because you know, because MPs are used to being whipped, and so suddenly they turn up. There's been a vote they haven't necessarily heard about it. They see lots of Tories going going one way, and they think, oh, should I be going that way? And you go, no, no. No, no, no. Hang on. Think about it. Are you in favour of abortion? Are you in favour of making women's life easier? Are you in favour of uh, of women being able to to go through the horrible period of, uh, of 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 having a you know having an abortion at home or having to go to some other context? No, no, no. I'm in favour of that. Well, then come this way. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Very rare a, bit of good there's news. There's such an obsession for undoing things uh, that emerged during the lockdowns, even when they're. Good ideas. Patently really yeah. good ideas, you know. We we came to an understanding that the statutory sick pay rate was not enough mm -hmm. to live on. And we're now back mm -hmm. at the old mm -hmm. statutory sick pay. And it's like, how was it not enough to live on well, when everything now, well, was, was closed? Two years ago. Exactly. How was it not enough to live on two years ago with everything closed and inflation, and inflation at 2%? At <laughs> and it's enough now with inflation at 8% and everything open. Well, one of the good things that happened as a result of this was that we didn't have the shame of England being more backward than Scotland and Wales, because in Scotland and Wales, they have kept the ability for women to be able to get receive these pills in the post and be able to have the abortion at home um, rather than anywhere else. And we have been able to, to make sure that we, we level up with those two countries. 
in terms of women's rights. Well, uh, on that note of very rare good news, uh, that's <laughs> the end of the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thank you. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Emily Thornbury. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for patrons after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. My thanks to John Morris, Hilary, Stephen Rayner, Stephanie Cole, Marco Contessa, Robert Allen, Karen Waterfield, and Big Floppy Donkey Dave. Muchas gracias from me to Gerard Redmond, Clocher, Fossil Games, User Researcher, Andrew Whithurst, Marianne Hudson, Jean McEwen and Ned Palmer. And thanks from me to Reese Hussey, Barry Mead, Chris Pidcock, Paul Sharp, Hayden, Richard Bowes, Ben Budd and Gus Kantowskis. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Naomi Smith. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronovich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And oh God, what now is a Podmasters production? Welcome to the extra bit, uh, peek behind the curtain exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, a question made significantly harder following the 2019 election when all the low-hanging fruit got kicked out. Who is the panel's favourite Tory? Sitting MPs only, please. So nobody's allowed to see, say, Disraeli, <laughs> Francis Urquhart from House of Cards. Dominic Green. Anything. <laughs> Dominic Green. Nothing like that. Um, I found this quite hard. Naomi. Um I changed uh, the person that I was going to pick um, today, perhaps out of complete ignorance of their previous record. Um, my favourite Tory MP this week is Jamie Wallace MP, who took the Welsh seat of Bridgend and Porthcawl, apologies if I haven't pronounced that correctly, in 2019. Um, this week he posted a powerful statement about his experience with gender dysmorphia, sexual violence and blackmail at a time when his own party was waging a culture war over the very issue. Johnson, just, you know, a few hours before this statement came out, mocked the trans issue at a dinner party uh, for Conservative MPs. So it's just an incredibly brave thing to do, um, and I'm sure it will help many, many other people in a similar position. So maybe for today only, my favourite Tory MP is Jamie Wallace. Alex? Um, maybe I misunderstood the brief slightly, because um, I thought favourite Tory MP is in who I love to sort of watch and I'm obsessed with their <laughs> motives. And all of that, that was a trailer for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>